There is an aboriginal expression about our stewardship of the earth. It goes like this. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Is this a great fact? Does this have an application for AA stewardship or any other 12-step program? What is our duty in AA? What if our duty in AA is not to preserve the legacy of our forefathers as much as it is to help craft and prepare an AA for the next generation? How would that mentality alter how we view what we preserve and what we adapt? What rituals we discard to better meet the needs of the next generation and what replaces them? Is there anything that has to be preserved? Is anything sacred? Is anything forbidden? Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, episode number 11, a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. Today we take inventory of our stewardship. Do we deserve a pat on the back? What could we alter or improve upon? We will revisit some of AA's previous stewardship struggles with inclusion for women and the LGBTQ community. You and I are going to look at AA history. We look at how the 1955 Big Book employed affirmative action before the term even existed. It made AA a more welcoming place for female members. In 1985, at the Montreal Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous, Barry L. talked about the 1970s vote to list groups as gay and lesbian affirmative. It was quite dramatic. So let's do it. As AA readies for its annual business meeting for Canada and the U.S. in April, I just came back from Sarasa, the Canadian Eastern Regional AA Service Assembly, which was held this year outside of Toronto in Mississauga, February 20th and 22nd. There are 10 districts from the Ontario-Manitoba border, east to the Atlantic Ocean, GSRs, delegates, and any member who wants to buy a ticket can come have their say as the 10 delegates get a feel for the room or hear from members as we discuss the agenda items of the General Service Conference in April 2015. On the Saturday morning, I was looking forward to a presentation called Diversity in AA, Our History of Inclusion. It was a mixed message indeed. What I heard was a juxtaposition of AA's view of itself and AA reality. While the Sarasa program is public domain, you can find it if you look for it. As far as I'm concerned, the names aren't important. Anything I might seem to be accusing uh, an area delegate of, I am quick to say I've been guilty of myself. I've been pious. I've been quick to think others ought to save time and see it my way. My way, of course, was, in my mind, the truth. I think we can be loyal to AA and expect more as well. You know that about me by now. Of course you do. So, a female delegate and a Latin district committee member were the presenters on AA's diversity record. That's good. The delegate talked of how welcoming and open-minded AA is. I know AA means to be forward-thinking, but I couldn't help but notice that the stage she stood on had no wheelchair ramp. How could an inclusive AA 
not be up to speed with current human rights legislation about barrier-free accommodation. It's not that the hotel didn't have a ramp. The Sarasa Committee didn't think to ask for one. AA's own Special Needs Accessibility Workbook says, We might not require special needs 12-step services today, but one woman describes herself as a TAP, T-A-P, Temporarily Able-Bodied Person, TAP. Not only are we all going to need assistance if we live long enough, no AA member should think that they aren't welcome to chair uh, or speak or read the traditions at an AA meeting or conference. Just because they use a wheelchair or walker should be no barrier. So on a visual basis, the talk got a 5 out of 10 from the get-go. 5 points for having visible minorities on the stage. 5 points docked for not having the stage compliant with current human rights legislation. Next is something about attitude, which I'm sad to see creeping into AA stewardship. Some AA stewards are a wee bit drunk on dogma or tripping out on authority. Stewardship is servitude, not law enforcement. In AA service manual, we're directed about avoiding indulgences in either wealth or power. Bill W. writes, We have seen why the conference can never have any dangerous degree of human power, but we must not overlook the fact that there is another sort of authority and power which it cannot be without, the spiritual power which flows from the activities and attitudes of truly humble, unselfish, and dedicated AA servants. This is the real power that causes our conference to function. It has been well said of our servants, they do not drive us by mandate, they lead us by example. While we have made abundantly sure that they will never drive us, I am confident that they will afford us an ever greater inspiration as they continue to lead by example. I like to emulate. I resist being told what to do. Who doesn't react to being told, you must or you can't? A Dr. Howard, when reviewing the manuscript for our book Alcoholics Anonymous, recommended that all finger-pointing such as you must be changed to suggestions such as we have dot 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 or we tried dot dot dot. Here's a taste of what I'm talking about on Saturday. The delegate at the diversity panel said with pride that she found a group that took artistic liberty, such as adding social media to our 11th tradition about anonymity in press, radio, and films. She would jump to attention and explain that she is the delegate for GSO from area such and such, and that it's against the rules to change the traditions and if their group wanted to stay an AA group, it better read them exactly as written. She sees her role as enforcer, and threatening AA members or their groups with expulsion is something that makes her a noble soldier of God's will or AA's will. But according to our concepts, conformity is a right, but not a duty of groups. Warranty 6 of concept 12 makes it clear that servants, such as delegates, act for the service of Alcoholics Anonymous, never performing any acts of government. 
that much attention has been drawn to the extraordinary liberties which the AA traditions accord the individual members and his or her group. No penalty to be inflicted for nonconformity. No member to be expelled from AA, each group to conduct its internal affairs as it wishes. Warranty 6 says that any group of Alcoholics Anonymous can call itself an AA group, provided that as a group it has no other purpose or affiliation. If there was another requirement to be an AA group, such as reading the traditions and steps exactly as printed in AA literature, it would say that, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. Stamping out artistic liberty isn't our primary purpose. One alky talking to another is our primary purpose, and they can talk to each other as respectfully or as irreverently, as literally or as figuratively as they like. The delegate went on about some of our history with overcoming barriers, including our first women and our, our first African-American members. Great. Those are good stories. At the end of her presentation, some of the members of the agnostic AA community came to the microphone to say that, but in Toronto, an exclusionary instead of inclusionary approach is taken where atheists and freethinker groups are concerned. One member from Widening Our Gateway group mentioned how promising the growth of WAFT groups, we agnostics and freethinkers, around the world is to her and all of us, but that her group still isn't listed in the Toronto Directory, and the voice of three Toronto groups will not be heard on the intergroup floor. They're banned. The delegate said, I don't want to get into the controversy, but you can't have steps without obeying God and call yourself an AA member or group. She was rewarded by a smattering of applause. So, let's review. She's talking about inclusivity and diversity. And from the podium, she poisons the environment for atheists and agnostics in Eastern Canada by saying that they aren't welcome to talk AA in their own language. Not in any AA that she's in charge of. I'm not saying she's not welcome to dislike atheists. But as a delegate, inciting a crowd to discrimination and hostility is just not kosher. The delegate would be well advised to know that to talk in this way from the podium is against the law. According to the Ontario Human Rights Code, there is a term called poisoned environment. Uh, from the OHRC website, it says, a poisoned environment is created when comments or actions based on grounds listed in the code, and creed is one of them, make you feel unwelcome or uncomfortable. Sometimes all it takes is one comment to poison the environment. In essence, by saying you can't express AA in secular terms, you're intimidating, harassing, and discriminating against one of AA's minorities. Even while atheists in AA are unpopular, they aren't un-AA. Groups have rights. Where the ignorance of this delegate's brand of stewardship comes from is she thinks, as too many do, that group rights are granted by AA and are therefore conditional. She's wrong. Members and groups' rights are inalienable, inherent. In her own theistic language, that means group rights, like member rights, 
are granted under God. These natural rights can't be given up. They can't be taken away. So the AA service structure doesn't grant rights, it protects them. An AA delegate does not restrict a group's freedom, she protects it. It's obvious that when we aren't biased, bigoted, or fearful, it's hard to believe that this delegate has never read AA Comes of Age, where Bill defends a group's right to take God out of his steps, our steps, if that group chooses to do so. If you've been a regular listener to this show, you can pretty much say this with me. On page 81, Bill W. writes, But here we must remember that AA steps are suggestions only. A belief in them as they stand is not at all a requirement for membership among us. This liberty has made AA available to thousands who never would have tried it had we insisted on the 12 steps just as written. This, of course, was in celebration of the first Buddhist AA groups, the first group ever to read, print, and distribute their interpretation of godless AA 12 steps in their AA meetings. That was in the 1950s when Bill W. was still alive. It's no stretch to suggest that our co-founder would also have been approving of any group that chose to add social media when talking about Traditional 11 could do so. Of course, this delegate is free to express her opinion of an AA program said verbatim night after night in her own group, where she is grossly corrupting our AA service structure is by putting herself in unqualified authority over any other member or group. A servant which her position is described as, serves. She doesn't govern nor enforce. If we want her opinion, we'll give it to her, and she can convey it to the AA General Service Convention. She betrays her position when she tells a group they have it wrong. Who is she to say a group conscience got it wrong? Is she God? Is she higher in rank than group conscience? When we say our leaders are but trusted servants they do not govern, maybe some miss the middle part. It's not leaders govern, it's do not govern. While the AA conference can't be changing the steps or traditions on behalf of the fellowship, that gives the conference and its delegates no authority over groups and members that choose to do what they think is right. In AA, like the civilized society beyond our meeting doors, we accommodate minorities. We reduce or remove barriers. We carry the message to everyone. We allow each and every member to express themselves or their interpretation of the message without censorship or threat of expulsion for nonconformity. So this is what happened in Sarasa. This is what's going to New York. She was asked to speak of diversity, and she shunned a minority because she doesn't care for their unpopular view. Or she was playing to a crowd who fears or dislikes atheists, would prefer maybe an AA without them. Feels like their worldview is an inferior worldview. I don't know. But she played to the crowd. She showed us the curb just for her own gratification. 
she would say she did it in the service of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this attitude, if we permit it, doesn't bode well for AA's future. I fear that the spirit of the conference will lean too much in favor of self-congratulatory patting on the back and too little looking at what's being done poorly or what changes ought to be made. I think AA has some questions we should be asking ourselves. We're looking forward to the 2015 World Conference of AA in Atlanta, Georgia, celebrating 80 years of AA. While so many members gush over the accomplishments of our past, I look to AA 100 in 2035. Don't think that I think we're entitled to survive another 20 years. I hope we do. Indicators suggest that we have problems to overcome before we get started putting candles in the centennial birthday cake. These indicators are a rise in dissatisfied sentiment with and among AAs and statistics that show some unhealthy trends. Let's talk America for a while. While the USA is a mere 4.4% of the world's population, Americans are 60.6% of AA worldwide membership. While AA continues its efforts to make literature available in more and more languages, to make AA accessible to more and more people, Americans today are a larger percent of AA as a whole than in 1992, when at that time they were 50%. I use 1992 as a measuring stick because that was the first year AA population exceeded 2 million members. For 23 years, membership has stalled up or down single percentage points each year. I'll get into those facts a little more later. Since 1990, our highest population of members was 2,215,000 in 2001. Our lowest watermark in these last two and a half decades is 1,790,000 people in 1994, and the members reported to us in 2014 were 2,138,000 members. So we've been up and down from 2 million, uh, less than 10% for uh, the better part of 25 years. For context... And for those of you keeping score at home, AA grew from two members to 6,000 members in 1942, 115,000 in 1952, 190,000 in 1962, 395,000 in 1972, 1,000,000 and 65,000 in 1982, and 2,049,000 in 1992. So we tripled in population decade to decade for quite some time before we leveled off. Now since 1992, the U.S. has 161,000 more AA members, and non-American members have dropped 90,000 over the last 20 years. The USA population has increased 
25% from 257 million people in 92 to 324 million people in 2015. So compared to America's 25% growth over that period, AA is becoming a smaller part of American life as our flat numbers lag against USA growth. Internationally, on a percentage basis, non-American members, while they were 50% of AA in 1991, are 39.4% of AA now. So, Pew Research has just released the report, or they did actually in April 2014. It's called Next America, and it has some dandy stats. America is a country in transition, has been for about the last 400 years. The Pew study looks at changes in the U.S. demographics from 1960, the year I was born, until now. When we compare the USA racial demographics to the AA Triennial Survey, we see a disconnect. So you and I are going to look at some AA stats. Not on their own. We're going to compare AA with NA with people receiving treatment for alcoholism and or a combination of alcohol and other substance abuse disorders. They kind of represent our newcomers, don't they? We'll also look at AA inside the doors of meetings compared to the USA outside the doors of where half of our members reside. Next America, the Pew study, shows how The racial tapestry is changing in the U.S. When I was born in 1960, America was 85% white, or Caucasian, 10% were African American, 4% Hispanic, and 1% Asian. In 2010, around the same time that the last AA membership survey was done, America was 64% Caucasian, 14% African-American, 16% Hispanic, 5% Asian, and 3% other. Sometime just after 2040, the U.S. will be less than 50% Caucasian. So we're going to look to see if AA is moving in the right direction or the wrong direction. NA, in their 2009 survey already started using the option mixed race for people to self-identify. AA hasn't. 15% of marriages today in the USA are interracial. If they are planning on producing children, we can expect the mixed race population to be on the rise. So what does AA's own facts say about AA diversity? Is there cause for celebration or cause for shame? AA today is more Caucasian than America. Not only is 2015 AA significantly monotone today, the 2011 survey shows an AA that is whiter than 1960 America. And 2011 AA is whiter than it was in 2007 AA. AA is older, more male, and as many of us would attest based on our own home groups, underrepresenting the cultural tapestry outside our meeting doors. Well, what are we going to do about it? I think it's a problem. I think it's a solvable problem 
But the first step, as you and I know, is to face the fact that we have a problem and stop lying to ourselves and to each other. Denial is not a river in Egypt, right? AA, if it was only as inclusive and diverse as the towns and cities we hold meetings in, would have been 40% non-white in the 2011 membership survey, not 13%. The 2014 survey results will be out in a few months. Will non-Caucasian membership have tripled since 2011 to catch up? We only have to think about our home group to know the answer. Does this mean that AA membership are white supremacist racists? No, but we have developed practices, I assume quite unintentionally, that make it easy for some to feel comfortable, and these practices make it easy for others to feel uncomfortable. Because we don't do these things on purpose doesn't make us free from responsibility. You know the Responsibility Declaration anyone, anywhere. If we were in front of a judge and we told them that we didn't see the stop sign, would she be likely to dismiss our failure to obey a traffic signal? Or would we be charged guilty for the ticket? We have a duty to know the law and to pay attention for our own well-being and for those around us. Where I live, The Ontario Human Rights Commission has something to say about AA's responsibility to advocate for minorities. On their website, the OHRC, Ontario Human Rights Commission, says this, Organizations must ensure that they are not unconsciously engaging in systemic discrimination. This takes vigilance and a willingness to monitor and review numerical data policies, practices, and decision-making processes and organizational culture. It's not acceptable from a human rights perspective for an organization to choose to remain unaware of systemic discrimination or to fail to act when a problem comes to its attention. Oh. (laughs) Well, that might end the pat on the back session at Sarasa. At the last Sarasa I attended, I blogged about it. There were 10 delegates from Eastern Canada. They were all Caucasian. I can also tell you that half of them were not women, and half of them were not below even our membership average age of 49. Our 10 delegates that are going to speak to us this year, I'm sure, are whiter, older, and more male, not only than Eastern Canada, but the AA meetings in Eastern Canada. It seems that AA is not only on the wrong course, but we've empowered the people who caused the problem in the first place to assess how well we're doing. Again, from 2007 to 2011, AA is a whiter population. Females have increased from 33% to 35%. The average age has gone up. The average length of sobriety has gone up. Everybody under the age of 50 is on the decrease, and everybody over the age of 50 is on the increase. I don't know that that's a sign of a good growing organization. 
1976, when I got here, half the members were sober less than two years because so many people were continuing to come in. So it seems that AA is not only on the wrong course, but we've empowered the people who caused the problem in the first place to assess how well we're doing. Narcotics Anonymous is younger, more racially diverse, and more inviting to a higher female population. Let's look at AA population against NA population from their 2009 survey and measure that against who newcomers would be. We'll use the statistics from people getting treatment in North America now. These are the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, survey of 2010. So, Caucasians. In treatment, 60% of the people are white. NA, 73%, 87% in Alcoholics Anonymous. African Americans, 5% in AA, 10% in NA, 21% coming out of treatment. Hispanics, 4% in AA, 10% in NA, 13.7% coming out of treatment. Asians, 1% AA, 2% NA, and 1% in treatment. Native Americans, Aboriginals, 2% in AA, 1% in NA, 2.3% coming out of treatment. Uh, classified as others, AA has 1%, NA4, and treatment 2. The male-female ratio, 65-35 in AA, 58-42 in NA, and 68-32 in treatment. NA has the closest to 50-50 numbers there. Now, youth, 2% of both NA and AA members are under the age of 20. 12% of people going through treatment are teenagers. In their 20s, 11% in AA, 14% in NA, and 29% coming out of treatment. So a lot of people coming out of treatment in their youth aren't finding their way to either NA or AA. In their 30s, 15% of AA are in their 30s, 22% of NA members are in their 30s, and 23% coming out of treatment. That's a little closer. And uh, people in their 40s, people in their 50s, 24, 27% AA, 34, 24% NA, and 24, 10 treatment. And 60 and older, 21% of AA, is 60 or older. Only 4% of NA is 60 years or older. And only 3% of people being given treatment are 60 years or older. A few points about statistics and these stats specifically. People going into treatment are younger than the average AA or NA member. Treatment starts more accurately reflect the 12-step newcomer than the general population. Remember, AA members, on average, are sober almost 10 years, so this is who they are 10 years later from the time they might have been in treatment if they went into treatment. We see that even in treatment for alcohol as well as other substance use disorders, more men than women are found. In previous shows, uh, well, we talked to Dr. Vera Tarman, and she shared about food addiction 
and in 12-step rooms the numbers are reversed. She finds more than half of them are women. Could it be that more men turn to drinking and drugs to cope with life while women turn to comfort food? I don't know. That was an idea she proposed. Could be. Statistics, while they show what people do, you can torture them all you like, and they won't show you why people do what they do. Assuming that those who go into treatment, a good many of them, are referred to or encouraged to attend AA or NA meetings, treatment starts do tell us something about the newcomer. Of these newcomers, who are staying in NA or AA? These stats show that those most likely to feel comfortable and keep coming back are white, middle-aged men. So while we praise ourselves for being inclusive and use words like diversity, what are we doing that makes our attraction, not promotion, more attractive to one demographic and unwelcoming or unsustainable to another demographic? These are big questions that I think we should be asking. And I think we shouldn't be afraid to ask them. And I think if we don't ask them, trouble will be a-brewing. So right now, there are four generations in 12-step rooms. The silent generation started AA. Baby boomers, born between 1946 and 1965, are the stewards right now for the most part. And they aren't in any hurry to turn the fellowship over to the next generation and to have that generation's vision, Gen X, which is 1966 to 1985, These people, by the way, have been the bulk of newcomers over the last decade. We baby boomers, and I'm one of them, no hurry to turn things over. Now, this generation of Gen X, they are smarter. At least they're better educated than our AA founders were. In 1940, university-educated Americans were 5% of the population. So they probably would have been 5% of AA. Now a third of Americans have a post-secondary education. Millennials, born from 1986 to 2005, they're internet natives. They aren't adapting like the rest of us. You won't hear, turn off your phone at a meeting run by a millennial who's chairing. In fact, they might be reading the preamble from their mobile phone. Books and binders? Dude, that's so last century. Almost half of millennials are not the white-skinned alcoholics in today's AA. One-third don't believe in God and never go to church, compared to just 5% of 45- to 65-year-olds. The fact that AA looks more like 1960 in the rooms than 2015 may be because of the people who have the greatest influence in AA, an aging service organization. Could current stewards, being tribal like anyone might be, and more conservative as older people tend to be, possibly due to uh, subconscious or deliberate insistence of nostalgic rituals, readings, etc., could they be sabotaging AA's pace to keep up with modern life? Is AA, as Bill sees it, really more inspired than the experience of any other member. Here's a novel concept. Do we dare ask the newcomer, what do you think of our meeting? Do you feel at home here, or do you feel uncomfortable? 
what could we do to alter or improve your AA experience? Going back to the wisdom of Aboriginal elders, I talk about showing reverence for newcomers because they are who we've borrowed AA from. We didn't inherit AA from the founders. Again, I'm wondering, is our job as stewards to leave AA just as we found it when we got here? Maybe we ought to think more about preparing AA for the future. Is today's AA the best possible AA for this and the next generation of AA members? And if things could be improved upon, wouldn't newcomers have the most objective input? Sure, we have to give up the take the cotton out of your ears and stuff it in your mouth brand of the newcomer is the most important member in the room. We're glad you're here. Shtick. We could do that. If we find that we must admit we are unmanageable and when we are wrong take inventory and humbly admit our inadequacies, this is a good first step. Then we can find the courage to ask for help from those who can help. One of the systemic flaws of our conference election process is that we leave it up to those who have created the problem, if in fact there is a problem, to evaluate the problem and come up with a solution. On the other hand, we have 40,000 AA members under the age of 20, according to the last triennial survey, and if they had equal representation at the general service conference, they would have four votes. Shouldn't it be they that are tasked with addressing how AA should express anonymity on social media? Who are we to tell them? The youth are our teachers, and this is their fellowship. But they don't participate in AA's annual business meeting. Why? Because we've never sent one there. To make AA look less like 1960 and more like the 21st century, we need diversity in our conference. This can be done through affirmative action, or what's called positive discrimination. We've done it before. Uh, reflecting on the flaws of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill W. aimed to correct our patriarchal bias. In the second edition, a third of the experience, strength, and hope was contributed by our female members. While far less than 30% of AA was female, the AA stories were stacked in stories of women's addiction and recovery, in their own words. In this way, AA was an early adapter to the women's liberation movement. We might have been ahead of the curve with the LGBTQ affirmative movement in some ways too, when homosexuality was still illegal and or immoral across much of North America, AA set their own values aside for the better good of the fellowship. And in the 1970s, they approved the listing of gay and lesbian groups. This wasn't matter of fact, au contraire. Here's an excerpt from a talk that Barry L. gave. I mentioned this earlier. This was the Montreal World Conference of AA, our 50th anniversary. His entire talk is available on the links page at rebelliondogspublishing.com. But here, just listen to this. Bonjour, mes amis. My name is Barry, and I'm an alcoholic. Je m'appelle Barry, et je suis alcoolique. Uh, I have just exhausted my French vocabulary. 
Isn't it nice to be at another intimate little meeting of just us? <laughs> it's a double whammy, you know, not only drunks and drunks and drunks and all and none, uh, but also my tomboy sisters and my sissy brothers. <laughs> this is not the way it was when I joined AA in 1945. We weren't in closets. We were sealed in bolts. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about our third tradition and the way it got started, instead of talking about my drinking or any of those dull things. I'm going to read first from the book Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, two or three lines written by Bill and published in 1952. And you will hear this language that I'm going to read in just a few moments in another voice. And I think the next time you get to read the book, Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, you might hear this in a different way. On the AA calendar, it was the year two. In that time, nothing could be seen but two struggling, nameless groups of alcoholics trying to hold their faces up to the light. A newcomer appeared at one of the groups, knocked on the door, and asked to be let in. He talked frankly with the group's oldest member. He soon proved that his was a desperate case, and that above all he wanted to get well. But he asked, will you let me join your group, since I am the victim of another addiction even worse stigmatized than alcoholism? You may not want me among you, or will you? There was the dilemma. What should the group do? A few years ago, a friend of mine called me and said, I just found a tape that might interest you. <clears throat> he collects tapes, wrong. And um, he said, this is a tape Bill made in 1968 at an open meeting. It was the opening night meeting of the General Service Conference, and there were lots of guests there, so this wasn't at an open meeting. And uh, it, he made a talk on all the traditions, and I'm going to play just what he said about Tradition 3. At about year two of the Akron group, a poor devil came to Dr. Bob in a grievous state. He could qualify as an alcoholic all right. And then he said, Dr. Bob, I've got a real problem to pose you. I don't know if I could join AA because I'm a sex deviator. Well, that had to go out to the group conscience, you know. Up to then, it was supposed that uh, any society could say who was going to join it. And pretty soon, the group conscience began to seethe and boil, and it boiled over. And under no circumstances could we have such a power and such a disgrace among us, said a great man. Right then, our destiny hung on a razor edge over this single case. In other words, would there be rules that could exclude so-called undesirability? And that caused us in that time, and for quite a time, respecting this single case 
to ponder what is the more important, the reputation, or is it our character? And who are we, considering our record? Alcoholism is quite as unlovely. Who are we to deny a man his opportunity? Any man or woman. And finally, the day of resolution came. And a bunch were sitting in Dr. Bob's living room arguing what to do. Whereupon, dear old Bob looked around and blandly said, Isn't it time, folks, to ask ourselves, what would the master do in a situation like this? Would he turn this man away? And that was the beginning of the A tradition that any man who has a drinking problem is a member of AA if he says so, not whether we say so. Now, I think that the import of this on the common welfare has already been staggered because it takes in even more territory than the confines of our fellowship. It takes in the whole world of alcohol. Their charter to freedom, to join AA, is assured. Indeed, it was an act in general welfare. In my own experience, during the year 1945, I was taken to have lunch with Bill by three wonderful ladies, three of whom were, uh, who happened to be among the six ink-stained wretches who started the grapevine. And the question that arose at lunch was this. We see a great many people arrive in AA who may be bisexual or homosexual, and they don't seem to stay sober. They arrive and stay just a little while and they disappear. Don't you think it might be a good idea, Bill, for us to have special meetings for these people? And Bill said, well, it might be the greatest thing in the pike, coming down the pike. How long have you been sober, Barry? And I said, oh, about 11 months, almost a year. And he said, well, now you can stay sober another day or two, can't you? And I said, yes. <laughs> you have friends, obviously, yes. Well, now, when you've been sober 18 months, I wish you'd come back and talk to me again about this, because I want to think about it, and uh, let me know what you think in 18, uh, after you've been sober 18 months. I forgot to go back and have that conversation, because by then there were so many of us, it didn't seem very necessary. <laughs> it was my job during the 1973 and 74 General Service Conferences to write the conference report. And those were the two years in which the question of listing gay and lesbian groups arose. They came up, that came about because of pressure from some wonderful people from Southern California. <laughs> All kinds of wonderful things come out of Southern California. <laughs> they wanted to list themselves as gay groups or lesbian groups, and the General Service Office, of course, has a very ticklish job. They really should not do anything very much that hasn't been done before without direction from the General Service Conference. And so they took the question to the General Service Conference. And it was debated in 1973 at some hot length. And finally, the chairman, getting very smart, said, I think we'll table the question till next year. 
But that put it on the agenda for next year, so everybody knew it had to come up and be settled the next year. At the General Service Conference, and if you don't know what the conference is, ask your sponsor. Uh, <laughs> the conference has absolutely no power over any of us, not one bit. It has the power of example, it has some moral authority, but that's all. And the conference likes, does not like to do anything by halves or even by bare majorities. The conference proceeds generally along the lines of almost complete unanimity. So in 1974, the question went back and forth, back and forth for two days and two nights. Much of the agenda was wiped out. I remember one man saying, well, if you um, are going to list the sex deviants, I guess next, next year you'll list the rapists. And I heard another person say something about, well, if we're going to get this kind of deviant in AA, what other kind of deviant are you going to want to list? The delegate from one of the northern states, or perhaps from a, Can a Canadian province, I'm not sure, was a delightful woman, about three feet tall, and she, she went to one of the middle microphones out here on the floor and pulled it down to her mouth and said, where I come from, alcoholics are considered deviants. The debate went on, but when the vote finally came that night, only two people voted against listing those groups. It was almost unanimous. I think it was 129 to 2. And after that, something even better happened. Someone arose and offered this resolution. It is the sense of the conference that no AA group anywhere should ever turn away any member at his first meeting. And that took in all of us. The conference drew a circle bigger in order to include us all. I've also had the fun of getting to write some things for AA, been hired to write some things. One of the things I got to write was a, um, uh, a book called Living Sober. Once you... No, no, you should have seen it before they edited it. One of my favorite sentences was cut out, only because the editor didn't know what it meant. It said something like, cruising along, looking for love in all the wrong places. <clears throat> but I think you'll find some things between the lines if you look hard enough. And then in 1976, the, job came, the, uh, the conference came up with the, the, uh, another bit of pressure. We must have separate pamphlets for every kind of minority group. We must have a pamphlet for blacks. We must have a pamphlet for uh, Native Americans. We must have a pamphlet for um, uh, old people, for young people, for gay people, for lesbians, for uh, uh, everything. And as a matter of fact, one of the members of the Literature Committee of the conference that year said, we also should have a pamphlet for illiterates. <laughs> Our fellowship is very broad. <laughs> I never did find out what language he thought we should write well anyhow. At any rate, they said, now we have to hire somebody to write the pamphlet. And I said, I've been collecting the stories for years. And so we wrote, do you think you're different? And um, I think that's pretty good. It picks out no single minority, but speaks about several minorities.
third tradition passes on to us an awesome responsibility. First of all, we must remember the tradition that says AA should not be involved in any controversial matter. And let us face it, sexual orientation on North, in North America is very much a controversial matter. It is not appropriate for AA to become political on that issue, from, in my opinion. We also have the problem of another tradition, that is the anonymity tradition. We have two kinds of anonymity to protect. Certainly, at an ordinary AA meeting, I have no right going outside and telling anybody, guess what movie star showed up at this meeting. I think I would be betraying the whole fellowship if I did that. I certainly have no right to go to a gay meeting and then go outside and say, guess who turned up at a gay meeting last night? As a double anonymity there. And finally, of course, there's that third tradition, and it puzzles me and embarrasses me, because for all I know, the next drunk that walks in the door deserves the same love that I got, and you all you got, and it might be a former Miss America, or it might be a TV evangelist, or it might be a California legislator. I'm not sure I've learned enough about loving yet. <clears throat> but they deserve it, just as we do, as, just as, as we got it. So that's cool. I, I do recommend hearing the whole talk. It's great. The more disappointing news that Barry avoided in the talk is that the conference had just rejected a pamphlet for gay and lesbian AAs. In 1981, the Literature Committee was recommending a pamphlet for homosexuals, the language of the day. In 83, a draft was presented and recommended to the conference to approve. They rejected it in 1984. (laughs) What an ominous year. On the grounds that two stories in Do You Think You're Different were enough. Barry L. died months after the Montreal talk, and it wouldn't be until 1989 that the gay and lesbian pamphlet was conference approved. AA for Women has been around since 1951. It was only 2001 that we had what is now called AA for the Black and African American Alcoholic. AA for Alcoholics with Special Needs just came out in 2011. So, who's read it? I didn't think so. GSO printed and distributed less than one for every 10 meetings we have last year. Mental and physical impairments don't apply to us right now, right? Maybe they will one day. Maybe if we read this pamphlet, we will be more compassionate. Maybe we ought to think about this the next time we recite, I want the hand of AA always to be there, and for that I am responsible. Takes 10 minutes to read. AA for the Native North American has been with us since 1989. We've talked before about the lack of literature that celebrates secular recovery. Don't expect anything in 2015. AAagnostica.org's petition to simply collect all of the grapevine articles by atheists and agnostics that already exist and have already been printed and put them in a book like the collection for young people, like the collection for the LGBTQ sober and out community. That petition was given a don't call us, we'll call you, thanks for writing. 
pass. Now, at the Eastern Canadian Regional Forum in Quebec last year, I was invited to write a letter to the Literature Committee when I shared that atheists and agnostics are still waiting for a pamphlet by us and for us. My home group and other members encouraged me to send it, and I did. The letter asks why. After all the requests from members from the 1970s to today, isn't there a pamphlet for and by atheists, agnostics, humanists, unbelievers? After all, they're sitting on hundreds of essays from our AA members since the 2012 recommendation for stories about spirituality, including successful atheists and agnostics in AA. Not that that wasn't controversial. They told me in response earlier this year, Now isn't a good time, but thanks for writing. We'll keep your letter on file. Now isn't a good time? What's that mean? Don't bother us for another 35 years? We're busy? I go back to this systemic problem of attitude with the AA general service structure. Now isn't a good time isn't how the servant answers their master. GSO is, as described by their own literature, the servant, and groups and members are the master. Don't agnostics and atheists have the right to be treated with the same dignity that every other minority is? Doesn't GSO have a duty to accommodate? Your answer to these questions will say a lot about your personality. Do you think that the rights of minorities are inherent or inalienable? or for fun, God-given. You have to employ a certain style of humor to speak of atheist rights as God-given, but that's just the superstitious wording for inalienable. They can't be given away, they can't be taken away. Is this a God complex that trusted servants suffer from that gives them the impression that they choose when love and tolerance for others will be our code? Hey, using myself as an example, I have to say we all fall prey to getting drunk on ego-feeding delusions of grandeur. I'm not accusing our general service structure of an unthinkable deed. I'm identifying. But the only way to cure a defect is to admit there is a problem. Come on, general service, say it with me. Denial is not a river in Egypt. Look at AA statistics. See how different our demographics are from the cities and towns outside our doors. Apologize to those we've overlooked and declare a sincere effort to identify systemic discrimination within our rituals and literature. Our fellowship is unmanageable as long as we aren't attractive to everyone who might need our help. In the same way that the conference asks for help from the community at large, for expertise through our non-alcoholic trustees, we can reach out to the community at large and ask underrepresented minorities, how can we serve you better? Instead of telling the world and ourselves how great AA is, let's apologize to those we've let down and ask them how we can alter or improve, how we can accommodate. As AAs, our ability to fulfill our primary purpose to carry the message to everyone who still suffers, regardless of creed, race, gender identification, age, or language, isn't up to par. This isn't overwhelming. We've been here before. 
This isn't a shout-out to them at GSO. It's a call to action for everyone. Hey, you, your delegate, your GSO office is just a letter, a call, or an email away. All that's necessary for the forces of evil to prevail is for enough good people to do nothing. Don't know who said that, but it bears repeating. Many small efforts make a big difference. And we don't need to wait for GSO's blessing to make a positive change at our own home group. We can all learn to be more accommodating and stretch our own group's boundaries just a little. Come on, we can do this. I won't keep you. I see you have a letter you're anxious to write, and I won't hold you back. I've thrown a lot of thoughts and stats at you. There's a transcript of this show available at rebelliondogspublishing.com. Help yourself to our notes, share the PDF or radio show, repost, share it as you see fit. We're all in this together. We'll talk again soon on Rebellion Dogs Radio. Thanks for listening.